Before Jesus begins his ministry, he prepares himself spiritually, mentally, physically, by spending 40 days in the desert wilderness. He surrenders food and wine and every indulgence. And there at his most vulnerable, the devil attempts to trick him with three temptations. During the 40 days of Lent, folks often give up decadent foods and strong drink, among other things. But perhaps Lent, in a sense, is about refusing to give up and refusing to surrender to despair and evil. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him, until an opportune time. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As some of you know, when you're raising two boys, you get drawn into a lot of arguments about what belongs to who. Resentful cries of, it's mine, and no, it's mine, reverberate through the house daily. In truth, these claims to ownership are unclear. Most of the stuff that my kids fight over, Legos, stuffed animals, action figures, it all used to belong to my son, Ethan, and then sort of passed down to his little brother, Levi, once he lost interest in them. You might say that they were redistributed to the proletariat. But old hatreds die hard, and a thousand other resentments between siblings have a tendency to erupt over the most trivial of disagreements. The back seat of my car seems to be the most volatile battlefield, the proverbial hot zone in their ongoing conflict as they wage war daily for the favored booster seat. As I leave the house to take them to school every day, I find them both 
pressed up against the locked door of my car, each of them jockeying for position to get inside first. And once the door is open, a kind of melee erupts as they try to climb over one another to get to the seat and lay claim to the proverbial throne. After school, the same scene plays out again, this time in front of the other parents, teachers, and students. If anything, this scene is even more dramatic than the one in the morning, the yelling and shouting even louder as if they're performing for the gathered audience, much to my own embarrassment. Now, they both have their stated reasons for this ongoing conflict, manufactured justifications for their war. Levi will tell you that the view is better outside of that window, that the seatbelt on that side is easier to put on. He also tells me, as if resorting to flattery, that he's got a better view of me from that seat. Now, whereas Levi appears to be fighting over the thing itself, Ethan is older and a bit more sophisticated, appealing to the moral high ground. He says that he's trying to teach his little brother that he can't always get what he wants. Attempting to instill some kind of life lesson, I suppose. And I frequently have to remind him that this kind of parental correction is not his responsibility, and that parents have to choose their battles, and this booster seat is not the hill that I am going to die on. So they've got their reasons. But it feels like these are mere attempts to legitimize their aggression, thin justifications for their real aim, which is simply to seize something that they believe is theirs, or should be theirs, by force. Has war ever been waged for any other reason? Perhaps it's human nature to take things from each other, if you're starving and someone else has a loaf of bread, you might feel compelled to take it from them, by force, if necessary. But as Jesus tells the devil when he's tempted in the wilderness, one does not live by bread alone. Jesus knows that life is about more than mere survival and that our flourishing requires a degree of integrity. That means, among other things, that you don't take things that don't belong to you. Least of all, a sovereign nation along your borders that poses no real threats to your country. And yet, of course, that is precisely what Russian President Vladimir Putin did last week. His weak attempts at legitimacy, he was liberating Ukraine, a country with a Jewish president, from Nazis, he declared. His justification for invasion does not hold up to the least bit of scrutiny or common sense. I confess it's a complex situation with a complex history that I can't claim to fully grasp, but it seems to me that what Putin really wants is a return to the glory of the former Soviet Union, not to welcome Ukraine home as some prodigal son, but rather to seize her and drag her back into the fold by force. And in the face of the climate crisis and potential collapse, I imagine that control over the Ukrainian breadbasket doesn't hurt either. But people don't live by bread alone.
We live by cooperation, by integrity and peace, all of which have been irrevocably shattered in this assault on the diplomatic foundations of the global order. How this ends, I have no idea. A prolonged ground war in Europe? A diplomatic off-ramp? A nuclear exchange? I don't know. All I know is how it always begins. War erupts because the very notion of enough, our idea of what constitutes abundance, is deeply flawed. It skews toward the material every single time. Towards bread, towards land, towards oil, towards wealth. Imperialists like Putin are never satisfied with what they have. Their eyes always drift towards their neighbors, coveting whatever it is that they possess. Their cup is already full to the brim, overflowing with oil and gold. But it's never enough. Their resources are abundant, but their humanity is in short supply. I don't know if the devil is real. I'm inclined to think not, at least in the traditional sense. But I know that evil is. And it's something, perhaps, that we don't talk about enough. And in Luke's gospel, it preys on this twisted notion of abundance. It thinks that it can convince Jesus that he needs something he doesn't have. That Jesus, starving, will take another's bread. It takes Jesus up to a mountain and shows him this massive empire, Rome, presumably, claiming that it could all be his if he is only willing to take it. It's not really the devil's to give away, after all, in spite of what he says. Vladimir Putin, looking out upon the expanse of Ukraine, was offered the same Faustian bargain. All of this could be yours, if you're only willing to take it from someone else. And unlike Jesus, he shook hands with the proverbial devil. As the theologian Howard Thurman once wrote, over and over we must know that the real target of evil is not the destruction of the body or the reduction to rubble of cities. The real target of evil is to corrupt the spirit of humankind and to give the soul the contagion of inner disintegration. When this happens, there is nothing left. The very citadel of man is captured and laid waste. For every building that's toppled in Ukraine, for every life that's taken, for every mile he gains, Putin loses ground in his own soul. That was a real temptation for Jesus, too. The prophesied Messiah who was expected to lead an army and topple Rome and restore the Davidic kingdom to its former glory. That's what people wanted from him. But Jesus, while tempted to walk the path of the benevolent emperor, knew that there is really no such thing. His long road to power would have been paved with the dead and stained with blood. Nothing good ever comes 
from the war. The scenes and the stories emerging from Ukraine this past week have been horrific. I heard an interview on NPR with one Ukrainian citizen who spoke about what was trying to sleep at night. It's loud, he said. The gunfire and the screams. You can't fake those kinds of screams. The screams of a person in real pain. I saw footage of a civilian car getting steamrolled by a tank. I saw another of a soldier wounded by the side of the road, bleeding out, as he gave his buddies a thumbs up as if to say, I'm fine. But I think he was in shock. And as I watched, so was I. Evil praise on our understanding of abundance and scarcity, too. We're not immune to it. The conveniences and luxuries we all enjoy in the West seem harmless enough, arriving in our stores and on our tables as if by magic, like stone turned into a loaf of bread. But in truth, everything we do depletes a resource. Sometimes the earth is exploited, sometimes it's people. Now, we're, I'm not entirely to blame. This is the world we all inherited, a, a system, an economy, a civilization that was built over centuries. But we can't claim to be living in peace with creation either, or with our neighbors around the world. You and I don't invade countries or slaughter innocent people, but we all benefit from exploitation all the same. The exploitation of cheap labor, of cheap oil, of all the things we take for granted. The mystic Thomas Merton, reflecting on war and peace, once wrote, To some, peace merely means the liberty to exploit other people without fear of retaliation or interference. To others, peace means the freedom to rob brothers without interruption. To still others, it means the leisure to devour the goods of the earth without being compelled to interrupt their pleasures, to feed those whom their greed is starving. And to practically everybody, peace simply means the absence of any physical violence that might cast a shadow over lives devoted to the satisfaction of animal appetites for comfort and pleasure. He goes on to say, many people have asked God for what they thought was peace and wondered why their prayer was not answered. They couldn't understand that it was actually answered. God left them with what they desired, for their idea of peace was only another form of war. Jesus, though, walks a different road and calls upon us to follow him. It leads through the desert where we might endure some material scarcity, food, going to be more expensive. Gasoline and energy are going to cost more. Sanctions levied on Putin are going to hurt us as much as it hurts him, to say nothing of Europe or the Russian people who are largely innocent in this conflict. But in a world where society is not entirely sustainable, we should probably be tightening our belts a little anyway. And preventing further bloodshed, to say nothing of nuclear war, is worth the economic cost. And as always, 
We have a responsibility to help those who will suffer the most from these burdens. Because abundance is about more than cheap energy and plentiful resources. It's about truth, hope, peace. It's about the things that bread, as necessary as it is, cannot provide. We can't live on bread alone. Least of all when it's been taken from someone else. I didn't tell my kids about what's going on in Eastern Europe, not at first, not until they learned about it in school. I didn't have the heart. My older son gets anxious at the very mention of war or nuclear weapons, I mean, don't we all? But for a kid his age, he already worries too much about the bigger problems in the world and what they mean for our collective future, and I worried what this news would do to him. As I was sitting in the car on the first day of the invasion, wondering what, if anything, I should tell him, I heard an interview on the radio with the Ukrainian mother. She described her mourning. I got my 10-year-old son dressed, she said, and we went down to the kitchen. We sat in the corner, eating our breakfast as far away from the windows as possible. But my son couldn't eat, she said. He was so scared that he threw up. I thought about my sons then fighting over a booster seat while kids in Ukraine are picking up machine guns and fighting for their country and for their lives, for their own right to exist. It's, it's an unequivocal tragedy. But though we are tempted, we cannot surrender to despair, not when they cling to hope. And we must cling to hope, even in the worst of times, especially in the worst of times, for we follow Jesus, who reminds us that love always wins, somehow. That redemption is possible, even in the fog of war, even in the presence of evil, even in the desert. Amen.